Amen. Bobby, you ready? ready? All right, he's ready. Here it is. He was born in 1775. Remember that guy you used to hang out with? Yeah. No, that's the wrong answer. You're blowing it already. 1775, okay, to a family of merchants who arrived in New York City to escape religious persecution in Europe. And they were Huguenots, right? Uh, Christian Protestants who were being killed by the Roman Catholic Church in France and being told to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ and rejoin the Catholic Church. Well, they weren't going to have anything to do with that. And so an upbringing like this, you can be sure that this boy, when he grew up, he wanted to stand for freedom, and that's exactly what he did. He went off to uh, King's College, which later became an under thing of uh, Columbia University. He became a lawyer, and he joined the opposition to British rule and their oppression of the American colonies. And it wasn't long before he was serving as the president of the Continental Congress in the United States. And like many other of his time, uh, especially from a persecuted Christian background, he not only used his legal powers to encourage others to resist the tyranny of man, but to seek salvation in Jesus Christ. Okay, listen to this. As the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, he actually made statements like this to the people. Okay, he said, unto him, God, who is the author and giver of all good, I render sincere and humble thanks for his manifold and unmerited blessings, and especially for our redemption and salvation through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. This is the first U.S. Supreme Court judge, man. And he said, and God has been pleased to bless me with excellent parents, a virtuous wife, and worthy children. And he's given me his protection throughout these years and has faithfully employed me in the service of my country. And he served our country on biblical principles. Listen to this. He said this. He said, mercy and grace and favor did come by what? Jesus Christ. And listen to this, Supreme Court, by conveying the Bible to people, we certainly do them the most interesting acts of kindness. And now they want to remove it? This is the first guy. He said the most effectual means of securing the continuance of our civil and religious liberties is to always remember with reverence and gratitude the source from which they flow, the Bible. It is the best of all books, he says, for it is the word of God that teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Listen, continue, therefore, American people, to read it and regulate your life by its precepts. U.S. Supreme Court, okay? And then later, of course, listen, he not only became uh, the president of the American Bible Society, but if you understand that society, he was the president. They were responsible and still are today for spreading the Bible in multiple languages all over the world. And yet we're supposed to eject it from our country, right? But today he's also still known in our country as one of the greatest attorneys, diplomat, statesman, author of the first manual for military discipline, the minister to Spain, the co-author of the Federalist Papers, which helped secure the ratification of the Constitution, again, the president of the Continental Congress, and again, the original chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. This one Christian's man name was John Jay. I'll give you some gum later. Give it for Mr. Tozier. You got the right answer. Right? And I won't tell everyone, I guess I'm going to, that you were up here sneaking in my notes, so you cheated, but anyway, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, you got it right, you got it right. Okay, but how many guys say, man, John Jay, Christian, whoa! That's pretty cool, right? Can you imagine that? God used one guy, one Christian guy, to affect the course of a whole nation. Wouldn't that be great to have lives like that? He had a life worth living for. And folks, once again, we've been seeing in our study, this is the problem. Even though God's the same God, and we're just as much his children as John Jay is, right? What's going on in the American church today? A horrible trend. We read the Bible in one hand, we take a look at our life in the other, and we're going, something's wrong here. Something doesn't match up. It doesn't compute, right? How come my life isn't matching up, right? How, how come God uses these people like John Jay and to, to do great things for him and affect the course of a whole nation? And here I am as a Christian just 
fumbling around in the dark. I don't have this life worth living for. I got a, I got a life worth giving up, right? You ever been there? Well, folks, this is the great news of our study. It doesn't have to be that way. This kind of life really is available to every single Christian. Once again, let's do it again. Turn to somebody and say, hey, that means you. Okay, and you can even say it like that if you'd like you to emphasize it, okay, or not. Uh, but we're going to continue our study. That's right, a life worth living for. And what we're doing is taking a look at the different keys I believe are pivotal if we're going to have those amazing, fruitful walks with Jesus Christ, believe it or not, affecting the course of our nation. Do we need Christians like that today or what? Hello, okay, like John Jay had, okay? And we've already seen that first key was experiencing God's joy. Then we saw the tail of that one was experiencing God's peace. It was a wonderful two-bang punch. It's icing on the cake. We get this on top of our salvation. Why? So that we can be those joyful, peaceful examples in a joyless, peaceless world, amen? Okay, then we back it up every day with your mouth. And we saw the third key was experiencing God's worship, not some crybaby whiny complaining mouth. That's a bad advertisement for Jesus. Oh, come to Jesus. He's great. He's awesome. And Excuse me? That's duplicit, okay? It's hypocrisy. Don't do that. We need to have out of our mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth flows. And we need to have our mouths lining up, being thankful and grateful for all he's done for us. Amen? All right? Then we saw the last two times, the fourth key, and this is common sense, is experiencing God's fruit, okay? And then we saw, again, it was just common sense, just, I think, just pure logic. Hello? If you and I, we've got to put it to the test. If you and I are ever going to get around to living these lives that we keep reading about every single week of some Christian and some moment of Christian history, even like John Jay, if we're ever going to get around to living those lives, okay, doing amazing things for God, then we got to do something about it, right? <laughs> we got to do what God says. We got to experience this fruit. We have to follow his commands, okay? And the last time we saw, the second thing we need to learn, if we're going to have that fruitful walk with Jesus Christ, is to have not just obedience, but what we talked about was a consecrated obedience, okay? The word there, consecrated, meant to be set apart, specifically set apart for obeying God. Now, we all know the right answer is Christians, of course, we're set apart for obeying God, right? Let me re-preach that again, apparently. So, no, so we're all set apart for obeying God, right? Yeah. Hey, there you go. Praise God. We'll get on to a new one. You guys are sweating bolts there for a second. No. <laughs> right. We say, hey, of course, that's the right answer. We're Christians, right? So we looked at the acid test as if God doesn't see all this. He does. Okay. And whether or not we're really consecrated to God, that's the right answer. But are we really? And there we saw, folks, your acid test is simply these two things. Where is your desires? Right? You can say you're set apart for obedience to God, but where is your desire? Who gets your time? Who gets your energy? Who gets your passion? Who gets your heart? Okay, is it God or is it this wicked world system? Number two, who gets your best? Who do you bust your back for ultimately, primarily, first of all? Is it your job? Is it your boss? Is it the government? Is it the IRS? Or is it God? And if it's not God and if all he gets is your worst, leftovers, not your best. Stop kidding yourself. As we saw, you might be a plastic Christian. Worse being a plastic Jesus. And can I tell you something? A plastic Jesus can't save you. You need to become a real Christian who, listen, wants to obey God, wants to desire him and obedience to him and to follow him, and he gets your best. Why? Because you have to know, because you're so thankful that he did it all on the cross for you. Normal, logical response. We do not work our way to heaven. That's impossible. All are disqualified, myself included. But we want to obey God because we're thankful and grateful. Love is our motive. Okay, as we saw there. Okay, now the third thing we need to learn if we're going to have that fruitful walk with Jesus is what I call an instant obedience. Okay, just like that lady, man, coming out of the gates. God says something, boom, you're out of there, bang. Order goes out, shot goes off. You got it, God, lickety split. 
okay? And I say that because I had to learn this myself. I got a couple stories for you today, unfortunately. Uh, that, that We got this horrible trend. We, we could get the last two weeks right where we could still blow it, right? We could finally get around, if you recall, that first week, and we could appreciate obedience to God, realizing, getting it through our head that, hello, name one command that's bad for us, right? They're all for our good, right? So why would we hesitate? Just appreciate obedience to God. That's the pathway to the best possible life this side of heaven. Number two, last week we could say, okay, I got that in my head. Every time God tells me to do something, it's awesome. It's great, right? Okay, but we can seriously say, I'm going to make a daily commitment to that, okay? It's a deliberate act. God is going to get my best, not my worst. Listen, you can still mess it up if you don't get your timing down. And the timing is simply like that. When you hear God say something in his word, a prompting of the spirit, you need to be instantly obedient. Just like the disciples. They set the pattern for us. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God. Open your Bibles to Matthew 9 is where we see this example. Matthew 9, the first example. Okay, and we're going to take a look at the calling of the guy named Matthew, in case you're wondering. Okay, and uh, notice to his response to Jesus' simple two-word command. Okay, and this is, I'm telling you, something that we need to get locked in and we need to emulate this. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Jesus is going to do some amazing miracles again. Okay, and then he's going to approach Matthew. Okay, but let's take a look at the context. How did he respond when a command was given by God, i.e. Jesus? Okay, let's take a look. Verse 1 there says, Jesus, he stepped into the boat. And he crossed over and came to his own town. And some men uh, brought him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, your sins are what? Forgiven. Well, listen to this. At, at, at this, some of the teachers of the law uh, said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Why? Because who's the only one who can forgive sins? God. How many times have you heard it from people, okay, who say, Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Excuse me, what do you think he's doing? And they, they certainly knew it because they said, oh, he's blaspheming. And only God can do that. Well, he is God, right? He said, and then listen to this, knowing their thoughts. Oh, wait a second. How can you know somebody's thoughts unless you're also God? So he says it twice. And this is just one passage. So Jesus declares himself to be God. He says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, and he went home. And the crowd, they saw this, and they were filled with awe. And then they praised God, who had given uh, such authority to man. Well, then Jesus, he went on from there, and he saw this man named who? Matthew. And he's sitting at what? Pay attention to this. A tax collector's booth. And he throws out the command, just simple two words. Listen, you don't have to go on Google to figure out what this means. It's pretty simple, folks. It's right here. Okay, all he says, there's no confusion. Follow me, right, is what he says to him. And Matthew said, well, you know what? i tell you what, I got some things to do. You know, there's some playoffs going on right now. You know what I'm saying? We, we got a potluck coming up. You know, I got to mow the yard. Although, you know, I got, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, snowing on Mount Charleston. I got to make sure that it's really real and it's not some holographic image. And I, no, 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 I'm sorry. He didn't say that. What did he say? He what? He got up and he followed him. Two word command, bang. No hesitation at all. One bit of hesitation at all from uh, Matthew. Jesus simply gave the command. He gave the order. He simply said, follow me. Matthew didn't waffle. He didn't hesitate. He immediately got up, listen, and he left everything behind. Everything, that's it. 
right? And to understand the importance of him, not just his immediate obedience, but him leaving everything behind, you got to understand the background of Matthew there. Again, he is a tax collector. Now, if you understand back in the day, a tax collector back then was typically pretty wealthy, okay? And, the perfect, and so, so from the world's point of view with money, he had it pretty good. But they were typically also hated by their own countrymen because they were looked upon as a traitor, right? The Romans would hire a Jewish person to tax the Jewish people. And so that's who Matthew was, right? And so they looked upon him as a traitor. And the way that they also got their pay, because they didn't get like the you know, minimum wage, they didn't get nothing. The way they got their income, listen, was they added more taxes than what was actually required, so they got all the leftovers they created. How many guys would say it's probably not a popular thing to do to your own people, right? And so here he was, on the one hand, at least from the world's eyes, wow, this guy's got it good. Fat cat city, man, living good, high on the hog. But he was hated and despised by his own people. And then now they got the context. Jesus shows up. He does this amazing miracle stuff. Whoa, ah, and that ain't the first one, right? And then all of a sudden, he just simply looks at Matthew. He's right to the tax collector's booth, and he simply says, follow me. Now, listen to his response. Bang, instantly, lickety split. Immediately, he leaves it all. Listen, riches and all, everything. He leaves it all behind. Why? Because it's the same thing today, folks. And I hope it's still true for every single one of us here. It's the same thing today. Once you see Jesus, your life can never be the same. Once you get a taste of his miracles, once you experience the full forgiveness of all of your sins, once you realize that he loves you in spite of you and he accepts you completely, unlike everybody else, you do the same thing. You go immediately and you follow him. And Matthew is not the only one who gave this kind of instantaneous response, okay, when it came to the calling, okay? We see the other disciples do this. Let's take a look now at Matthew chapter 4. These guys had jobs, right? They had livelihoods. Notice their response, okay? Matthew 4, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew, right? Now, they were what? They were at work. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. And Jesus simply says the same thing. Come, follow me. And Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he said, well, I can't do that. I don't get off to work till five, right? <laughs> you don't understand. I've got to build up some security first before I can obey. I've got to make sure my 401k is locked in. Hey, don't you realize the economy is going in the tank again? So now I've got to work doubly hard to get it built up so then I can really follow you. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong translation again. Uh, what do he say? Boom! At once. At once, they left their nets, they dropped those stinking nets, and they went and followed Jesus. Right? Now, let's continue on. Now, going on from there, he sees two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and notice what they did. Bang! Immediately, they left the boat, and they left, listen, they even left their family behind. Because who comes first? Jesus. And they went immediately, and they followed him. Again, another example of the apostles, the disciples. No hesitation, no disobedience, just an instant response at once to whatever God says to do. Why? Because this is Jesus. 
Do I even have to say this? Are you serious? This is God. This is God in the flesh. He walks on water. He's the Messiah. He's the creator of the universe. He can do all things. He forgives all sins. He loves me. He wants me, me, the outcast to follow him. Are you kidding me? This is the best day ever. No wonder the disciples said, man, I'm out of here. I'll drop those stinking nets. I'll follow you. Are you kidding me? Yes, sir. How high, sir? What do you want me to do, sir? Instant obedience to Jesus. Because there's nothing more important. Nothing more than exciting. When he calls you to come, whoa! You betcha. And that's what you see in the example. Common, listen, common sense, natural, logical response to who's given the command. So surely that's what we're doing today, right? Michaela, first of all, stop calling me Shirley, but no, it's not, Okay. Now, 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 when we first got saved, it's typically how that works, right? Remember that? We talked about that before. I remember when I first got saved, I was literally, again, calling my sister on the phone, who was the only Christian saying, okay, now what? Okay, now what do I do, right? I haven't read the whole Bible yet, but what's God going to do? I'm just, yeah, that's a natural response. You love him. Can I shine your shoes, take you out to eat? You want to go to the potluck with me? Anything, what do you want me to do? But over time, when we get more mature, and we look at those other Christians who've been saved longer than us, then surely they know better. No. Even though God wants to use us, listen, Christian, just like he used the disciples to become fishers of men, do you know he wants us to do the same thing today? And he wants to use us, okay? We don't give God instant obedience like we used to, and we've allowed roadblocks to mess everything up. And I want to talk about two of them today. The first roadblock we've allowed to come in after getting saved is we get into hesitation. What's there to hesitate? Excuse me? And this was the last thing the psalmist was ever going to do in obedience to God. They understood the importance of instant obedience, just like the disciples. Let's take a look at that. Once again, Psalm 119, 57 through 60. You, God, are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. What? They appreciate obedience to God. They are set apart for God. They are serious about this with all my heart. They're no willy-nilly or at all. Be gracious to me, God, according to your promise. I have considered considered my ways. I've turned myself to your statues. Listen, I will hasten. In other words, quick, lickety split. I'm getting right after it. And what? Not delay to obey your commands. No way am I ever going to do that. Why? Because this is Psalm 119. We already saw that in the first study. Psalm 119 is all about appreciating obedience to God, as we saw before. That's what Psalm 119 is all about. All the positive benefits of obeying God's commands. There's not one that's bad for us, so get at it, right? And the psalmist is so convinced of this that he realizes the last thing you would ever want to do, this is common sense, is to hesitate. Why would you hesitate? Why would you put a delay into what? Into receiving God's blessing. Why would you do that? It makes absolutely no sense. Besides, if you start doing that, it might mess up the wonderful things that God wants to do through you, as well, which is why he might be giving you that command in the first place. I will hasten. I will not delay in obeying your commands. In other words, just do it. Get that out. Of, when God said, just do it. Don't think about it. Don't hesitate. What's there to think about? Just do it. Just do it. Why? Because the moment we allow hesitation to occur, in obedience to God, whatever the command is. I don't know if you learned this the hard way. It causes confusion. Uh, uh, 
right? It, it was simple. It was just two words. Follow me. But they went, oh, no, no, I got to think about it. I got to consider this. Or, I, would you, are you still, and next thing you know, we get all confused. Oh, it's all clouded now. What? It's simple. The moment you allow hesitation, you create a delay. When you delay in your response, it mess, everything goes downhill from there. You don't believe me? Just ask this guy, Herman. There was this uh, older lady who was quite delicate and elegant in her language, proper. Obviously, I, I'm not related to her. But anyway, <laughs> and she and her husband were planning a week's vacation in Arizona, right? And so she wrote to a travel trailer court, and she asked for a reservation, and she wanted to make sure that the campground was fully equipped, and she didn't really know how to ask about uh, their toilet facilities, right? She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter, right? So after much deliberation, she finally came up with the old-fashioned term, bathroom commode, right? The bathroom commode, right? And, and so she started all over again, and she referred to the bathroom commode as simply the BC, right? The BC. Does your campground have a BC? Is what she wrote. Well, the court manager, Herman, pff, he's not fancy and elegant. He grew up in Kansas like me and Robert, right? <laughs> so when he got the letter, he couldn't figure out what in the world she's talking about, right? This BC business had him stumped. So he delayed in his response to her, okay? And the more he delayed, the more he got confused. So finally, Herman couldn't take it anymore, and he jumped to the conclusion that the lady must be talking about the location of the Baptist church. <laughs> so he sat down and wrote her this reply. Dear madam, I regret the delay in answering your letter, but now I'll take pleasure to inform you that a BC is located nine miles north of the campground <laughs> and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. I must admit this is quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going regularly, uh, but no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. And in fact, the last time my wife and I went was six years ago. And it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time when we got there. And it may interest you to know that right now there's a supper plan to raise money to buy more seats. And they're gonna hold it in the basement of the BC. And I would like to say it pains me very much to not be able to go more regularly, uh, but it surely is no lack of desire on my part. You see, as we grow older, it seems to be more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. So if you decide to come down to our campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time you go and sit with you and introduce you to all the other folks. Remember, this is a friendly community. Sincerely, Herman. Let's pray for Herman. <laughs> but what's the point there? Herman found out, how many times have we done this? Herman found out the hard way that delaying in your response to something leads to confusion, right? And then it gets all clouded. It didn't have to in the first place. And all of a sudden, things go downhill from there. And how many times again have we been through this, folks? God tells us to do something, which again, by the way, is for our own good, right? He wants us to do something. He wants to use us to do something great for him. But what do we do? Uh, we delay. We delay. We, we say, well, wait a second, wait a second. Okay, yeah, no. God, I know that was really simple. You just simply said, follow me. But you know, I need to think about that for a minute. No, 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 no let me ponder about this. You know, let, no, let me ask my Sunday school class about this. You know, I know hey, God, let, I know what I need to do. I need to talk to the deacons about this. And we need to launch a committee. We need to launch a committee to talk about the feasibility of following you, and then what they could do, and then we could vote on it. And we... 
what? Excuse me? And the next thing you know, guess what happens? Delay. And we create our own stinky mess, right? This delay, oh, I gotta think about it first. What are you talking about? What command's bad for? Just do it. Don't hasten. Woo, chop, chop, chop. Get to it. Enjoy the blessing. And God wants to do something. Why are you delaying? Oh, no, I gotta think about it. What? And it's this thinking about, listen, is what, if you recall, in our first study, is what got King Saul to lose his kingship. You guys remember that part? If you remember there in 1 Samuel 13, he went ahead, he made the offering, which he should not have done. Okay, he disobeyed God. Samuel arrives and he says, what in the world have you done? Right, and do you remember what Saul said? I'll quote it for you. When I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Micmash, I thought, there it is. There's your delay. I had to think about this. Instead of instant obedience, Saul, bang, ultimately lost his kingship because he had to think about it first. When God says something, what in the world are you hesitating for? Just do it. It created a delay. Now, he's not the only one. If you see in the scripture, Naaman, he did the same thing. Remember him? He's the big shot uh, commander in the Old Testament, and he had leprosy, and here come finally the good news. The good news. One day, he was said, if you just go see the prophet Elijah, you're going to be healed of your affliction. Just go there, do whatever he says. Woo! Get the blessing, right? He had to think about it. It created a delay, and it almost cost him his blessing. Let's take a look at that passage. Remind ourselves about this. 2 Kings chapter 5, 9 through 14. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a message to him saying, here's all you got to do. Simple. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Yay! It's here. I'm out of here. I get, I'm getting rid of the leprosy. It's here. Yay! That's all I got to do. And now all of a sudden, but he what? He went away angry. What are you talking about? It was right before you. Uh, uh, oh, what's the two words again? I thought. Isn't that what we do? You see, God, I, I get it. You're trying to bless me and you tell me to do something. But see, it's supposed to go this way. Right? If it's really from you, then it's got to go the way that I think it should go. I, th I, I thought that he would surely come out to me and, and stand and call the name of the Lord his God and, and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And I mean, come on. I mean, it's just it's practical. Are not Arbana and, and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? I mean, surely it's got to go my way. So he turned and went off in rage. Right before him, just do it. Everything you wanted is right before you. You are about to blow it. Listen to his servants, much smarter than him. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Hello? How much more than when he tells you, just wash me cleanse? What are, you, what are you hesitating for? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and it became clean like that of a young boy. What are you doing? Why did you make it into such a big issue? Naaman was given an order for his own good, but just like it's today, his Thinking about it 
almost blew the whole thing. Just like King Saul, unlike the psalmist, he gave into hesitation. He had to think about it, okay? And so it is today. How many times do we have to go through this? God gives you and I every single day. How many times does he prompt us in his word? How many times does he prompt us by his spirit? And he sits there and he says, do this, don't do this, do this, whatever. And what do we do? The same thing. Well, uh, um. Only God knows the answer to this one. How many blessings... How many fantastic opportunities? How many things had God given us a command to do? That was real simple, by the way. But we never saw the manifestation of it because we had to think about it first as if any of his commands are for a bad. We actually have to think about it before we can put it in action, excuse me? I mean, this is God. This is God. <laughs> He's holy. Name one command that's bad for us. Why are we delaying? All his commands are for good. Just do it. Don't hesitate. Receive the blessing. And our hesitation messes everything. It's a subtle roadblock. We have to get back to that sensitive heart like we had when we first got saved. That when God tells us to do something, you just do it. Just do it. <laughs> you don't need to think about it. Just do it. Don't hesitate. Drop those stinking nets and follow him. Let it go. This is Jesus Christ. Haven't you tasted his goodness yet? He walks on the water. He performs miracles. He's the Messiah, the creator of the universe. He can do all things. He forgives all sins. He loves me and he wants me to follow him. Are you kidding me? This is the best day ever. Yes, sir. How high, sir? What do you want me to do, sir? The world hates me, but you love me. I'll follow you. Instant obedience every time. I can't believe you even want me to follow you. Common sense, logical response. There's no legalism here. Common sense, logical response. The second roadblock, we not only give in to hesitation. Wow, it even gets worse. We give in to categorization. Uh-oh, big, small. As you can see with the graphic there. Right? We wouldn't do that, would we? I mean, it's bad enough we give in to delay, but the last thing you ever want to do is categorize God's commands. Some are bigger than others. This is a small one. No big deal. Oh boy, you know it's heavy on sarcasm today. Uh, and, and once again, this is another thing the psalmist refused to do. Okay, obey all of God's commands is the point. Psalm 119, again, he already appreciates the obedience to God. Okay, one through five, blessed, not tortured, blessed are those whose ways are blameless. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, you walk according to the law of the Lord. Okay, and blessed, not tortured, are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Okay, they do nothing wrong. Why? Because they walk in his ways. You have laid down your precepts, God, that are to be what? fully obeyed all of his commands are to be obeyed oh that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees okay because why the psalmist again not only admits repeatedly over and over again if you just do what god says again name one command that's bad for us answer is none if you just do what he says don't hesitate get to it commit to it with all your heart every single day you're going to be blessed again and again and again and again and again as we saw last week that doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect life perfect well perfect health that's a lie but you follow him and you keep it up and put him first you'll always eventually come out on top 
even if it's just spiritual, okay? But his law is to be obeyed at all times with all your heart, all of his commands fully obeyed. And it's common sense because think about what we're doing when we do this dichotomy. All God's, are there some commands from God that are bad and some that are good? No, they're all for our good, okay? And so surely we're not categorizing God's commands like this. Like, well, hey, that's just a, that's just a small thing, right? Yeah, that's no, no big deal. You know, that command, <laughs> we don't have to worry about that one. I mean, that's a, that's a minor issue in the church today, right? Oh, here's one. Come on. It's just a gray area. Really? I've learned something, even if the Bible doesn't say exactly specifically to that, all you got to do is ask yourself two uh, questions, Christian. You'll have your answer just like that. Is this activity, belief, or behavior going to help or hinder my walk with Jesus Christ? Is it going to help or hinder my witness for Jesus Christ? Bang! You got your answer. There is no gray area. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And I would challenge you as you get to know the Bible better, and that's why the enemy doesn't want you in there. You're going to find that all those supposed gray areas, there is an answer in there that is very applicable to what you should do. But that's what we do. Hey, it's not that big of a deal. It's a small thing. It's a minor issue. It's a gray area. Listen, we size up God's commands. Excuse me? Who gave you the right to pick and choose which commands to follow? Who in the world do you think you're dealing with here? They are all to be obeyed fully. And this is what the psalmist declares. God wants, listen, obedience in all things. Why? Because all of his commands are for good. Now, to show you how easy we get tricked, because we're, you know, you know the right answer. Oh, Pastor Billy, we would never do that. We would never, ever categorize God's command. I mean, of course, we, we all know they're all good. They're all to be fully obeyed. We would never. Let me show you one easy example of how we do this probably every day. And it's with the sacred cow. You ready for this? The speed limit. Oh, no, not that. Yes, that, I'm telling you. And this is something, folks, I had to learn myself. This has nothing to do with legalism. Pay attention. Do you obey the speed limit everywhere you go? I won't say his name, but I actually had an internship where the pastor of that church actually admitted to the congregation that the reason why he does not put any Christian bumper stickers on his truck <laughs> is because he doesn't want to be a bad witness and... What? <laughs> it's one thing to do that, but you just... What? But somehow that's okay. <laughs> what? But, but do you obey everywhere you go? I mean, every time we're driving down the road, we're always in a hurry, right? We see that sign popping up on the, on the side streets or on the freeway, right? Every time we see that sign, we go, yeah, yeah. It's another opportunity to show instant obedience to God in all things. I want to be blessed. Let's just close in prayer. No. Folks, how many times have we got to learn the hard way? It does not pay to break the speed limit. Police officer, he pulled over this nun. <laughs> Notice how I distance us from us. A nun. She's driving a car. 
And he pulls over and he goes, ma'am, you are driving way too slow. Could you please drive a little faster? And the nun says, oh, I, I'm sorry, officer. I, I saw the sign with the 21 on it and I assumed the speed limit was 21. And the officer says, no, 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 ma'am. The speed limit is 65, the highway is 21. <laughs> So then he looks in the back seat and he sees two other nuns back there and they're like, oh, shaking like leaves. And so he asks the other nun, he says, excuse me, sister, what's wrong with those two in the back seat? And she replied, oh, that's because we just got off a of highway 145. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> now, I'll be, that's a funny example. I'll give you that. He helps the medicine go down. But in all seriousness, because something is, listen, small as the speed limit, could that very well be why God's not using you to do big things for him? Now, believe it or not, I had to learn this myself. I'll be honest with you. Before I got saved, I didn't drive this speed limit. Are you kidding me? Speed limit's for nerds. Right? You have that non-Christian attitude. Who cares? Whatever. By the radar detector and all that stuff. I got stuff to do. But when I first got saved, I'm all alone. Nobody gave me a sermon. I didn't listen to this. I didn't hardly know any of the Bible. Instantly, bang, very next day, I'm driving to work. Oh, driving speed limit. Nobody gave me a sermon. Nobody had to tell me. It was just natural. It's obvious. Oh, okay, God, is that what you want me to do? Okay, you got it. But the older I got in the Lord and I got into Bible college and, you know, became much more mature as a Christian. And again, I saw those other Christians around me, even in Bible college, who were saved longer than me. And how they had apparently categorized this command into, you know, not that big of a deal. I decided to do the same thing too, as a Bible college student. The speed limit, (laughs) that's just a small thing, you know what I'm saying? It's no big deal, right? I mean, you don't need to worry about this. It's just, it's a minor issue. Come on, it's the gray area. It doesn't say in the Bible, obey the speed limit. Oh, really? That can very well be debated with Romans 13. But that's what he did, right? Until, I kid you not, I was driving to work and God spanked me big time with this passage of scripture. Changed literally the course I would take with an attitude in ministry. Luke 19, 17, Jesus speaking, he says, well done, my good servant, right? Well, why? Why is he so good? Why is he so excited with them? Because listen, his master replied, because you have been very trustworthy in a what? A very small matter. What am I going to do? What's your reward? I'm going to let you take charge of 10 cities. Yeah. And here's what God did to me. This is what I learned. This is what God spanked me with, Mr. Young Bible College student preparing to be a pastor someday. You can't even obey something as simple as a speed limit. And you have the audacity to say, oh, it's just a small measure. And you ever really think I'm going to cut you loose with a big responsibility when I can't even trust you to do this small thing? That's the lesson that I learned. And out of that was this. We cannot neglect what we label as small things because God wants simple obedience in all things. We cannot neglect obedience in what we would call small things because God wants obedience in all things. Why? Because it might be messing things up. 
Why? I've been a Christian for how long? God, how come I never get to do that stuff? How come I don't get to do that? How come you never trust me with this? How come you never cut me? How come they get to it? You can't even do this small. How many years has it been? Now I'm not talking just the speed limit. You can fill in the blank. You can't even do this small thing. And you really want me to put you in that big position? I can't trust you. And because I love you, uh uh-uh. Until you realize I want obedience in all things, stop sizing them up. Then I could trust you. Then I could cut you loose. Nothing about legalism. Everything about common sense. Because here's the facts. Did you know every day we're going to be doing something with our hands as a Christian? Did you know that? Every day. And believe it or not, folks, it's going to depend what you do with your hands is your attitude towards this obedience issue with God, right? And if you don't hesitate, you don't categorize, just do what he says, your hands are going to be bearing fruit for Jesus. And that's what we say we want. But don't kid yourself. If you hesitate, and you got to think about it, and it's got to go your way, or this way, or whatever, or you think, oh, that's a small thing, that's a gray area, that's not... then your hands are going to be doing something. Your hands are going to be doing what's called the deeds of the flesh after all that his hands have done for us. Like this video shows, let's take a look. Jesus came to do the Father's will. He did something splendid with his hand. 
Is that our attitude? When God asks us, it's not about us. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he came here to be a servant. He's the master. Do we have that same attitude? We are here to serve him. Yes, sir. How high, sir? What do you want me to do with these hands today? You give me an order? Uh Uh-huh. You betcha. Or, it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) Small thing, right? (laughs) This is a gray area, minor issue. What you will be doing, Christian, with your hands today will be determined today your attitude towards obedience to God. And stop kidding yourself. If you give in to hesitation, you think you've got to think about it. Or it's got to go the way you think it needs to be done before you obey God. And if you give in to categorization of God's commands and you size them up, hey, big, small, what, excuse me? Then your hands will be doing the deeds of the flesh. After all his hands have done for us. Instant obedience is the common sense logical response to the folks, you and I, who are truly grateful for what his hands have done for us. No legalism, none of that stuff. Common sense response. Why? Because this is Jesus, man. Do I have to say this again? Do you understand the context? Do you understand why the disciples were so flipped out? This is Jesus. He is God. And he is here. This is God in the flesh. He walks on water. He performs miracles. He's the Messiah. He's the creator of the universe. He can do all things. He forgives me of all my sins. He loves me. He wants me, me, the outcast to follow him. This is the best day ever. Are you kidding me? Yes, sir. How high, sir? What do you want me to do? The world hates me. The world despises me. My own people reject me. But you love me. And you made a way that I could go to heaven completely free after I pulled what do you want to do with these hands? Just give me the command. I'm itching to get at it. Instant obedience. Now, if even after all this, you're still sitting there going, Pastor Billy, come on, you're cutting into the potluck. <laughs> you might think it's a small issue. I think it's a big issue. And you really have no intentions in changing your behavior then maybe you need to examine yourself like this guy shares. Let's take a look. I'm not troubled in my heart about your self-esteem. I'm not troubled in my heart about whether or not you feel good about yourself, whether or not life is turning out like you want it to turn out, or whether or not your checkbook is balanced. There's only one thing that gave me a sleepless night. There's only one thing that troubled me all throughout the morning. And that is this, within a hundred years, a great majority of people in this building will possibly be in hell. And many who even profess Jesus Christ as Lord will spend an eternity in hell. Many of the things that you love to do, God hates. Did you know that? Pray for revival. You're going to have a youth meeting. You want God to move. But before you go there, you watch programs on television that God absolutely despises. And then you wonder why the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen on a place and why you have to create false fire and false excitement. 
God's not in it. God is a holy God. And the only way you and I could ever be reconciled to a holy God is through the death of God's own Son. When He hung on that tree. Because you need to realize the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you have no idea what that means. That we were born radically depraved and God-hating. That we would have never sought God, never come to God. We have rebelled against God, broken every law. It's not just an issue that you have sinned. The issue is you've never done anything but sin. What we need to see, I'm not trying to be hard for the sake of being hard. Do you realize how much love it takes to stand before 5,000 people and tell them that American Christianity is almost totally wrong? The Bible says in the prophets that even our greatest works are like filthy rags before God. And because of that, you know what we deserve. The wrath of God. Why am I a Christian? Because there was a time in my life when I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. I want you to know that the greatest heresy in the American Evangelical and Protestant Church is that if you pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, He will definitely come in. You will not find that in any place in Scripture. What you need to know is that salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance. A turning away from sin, a hatred for the things that God hates and a love for the things that God loves. A growing in holiness and a desire not to be like Britney Spears, not to be like the world, and not to be like the great majority of American Christians, but to be like Jesus Christ. don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. How many people in the American church today have the same lackadaisical attitude towards obedience to God? <laughs> Even clapping, woo, yeah, that was awesome. Preacher, preacher. I'm talking about you. If you can honestly give a rip about obeying God, I mean honestly, then maybe you need to do what the scripture says to do. I didn't say this, God did. You need to examine yourself. I think you're being fooled. 2 Corinthians 13, 2 and 5. The Corinthian church, by the way, if you don't realize, they were full of sin and rebellion and repentance was not there. And Paul had to warn them again and again, excuse me? 2 Corinthians 13, 2 and 5. I've already given you a warning when I was with you uh, the second time, and now I'm repeating a third time when I'm absent. Excuse me? Examine yourself. See if whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, what? You fail the test. And you fail the test when the Spirit of God is not in you. How do you know if He's not in you? When there's no conviction of sin. Because He is called the Holy Spirit of God. And as the Holy Spirit of God, He is our seal for our day of redemption. Praise God. Our salvation is complete in the work of Jesus Christ. But when He indwells you as a true born-again Christian, you cannot be comfortable with sin. You cannot be complacent with it. Because He convicts you. That's what He does. But if there is no conviction, and all this is is just a show, I'm talking to you. 
God says, you better examine yourself. Are you kidding me? How many people did Jesus say? Listen, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they were right there doing Christian stuff. He said, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Our attitude towards obedience to sin is a big issue, not a small one. And maybe it's time you truly surrender to Jesus and become a real Christian who's not perfect, amen, but has a heart. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry I hurt you, God. I love you. Would you forgive me and help me to not do that again? Natural, normal response. And then God will give you a life worth living for. He'll use you, the disciples, to become a fisher of men. Showing the world by your obedience to the gospel and to his commands, every one of them, that Jesus really is the one way, the only way out of this horrible, wretched mess. Amen? Let's be that church. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness, or the wrong things that we have done, have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin, or unholiness, uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy, we're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief. Okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay, and folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. 
One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. 
And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask Him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in His work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.